You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on April 14th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was First Job, Worst Job. Music was performed by Marshall Williams with Guy Unziker and Andrew Madsen. I take these movements from my father, for I will always be. Breathe from dust from this earth, cast my ashes to the sea. Our first storyteller tonight is Kristen Cox. Dr. Kristen Cox was born on Vancouver Island and raised in Oregon. She came to Juneau in 1995 as an AmeriCorps volunteer for the Southeast Alaska Guidance Association. She hauled plank and helped build the original Outer Point Trail. Hmm, thanks. Kristen has been a practicing naturopath doctor in Juneau for 12 years. Currently, she is working in public health policy, specifically tobacco prevention. Please help me welcome our first storyteller of the night, Kristen Cox. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, when I heard the topic for tonight was worst jobs, I knew that it was the theme for me. And you all recognize me because I'm the only colon hydrotherapist between Anchorage and Seattle. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm not here to tell tales about the behinds of Juno's powerful liberal elite <laughs> or popular former politicians. Um, so in 1997, after serving my two ter terms as an AmeriCorps volunteer here, I was looking for a job, and I answered an ad as a receptionist at the newly formed Southeast Alaska Pathology Lab. And when the doctor found out that I already had a year of medical school under my belt, he immediately took me back to the lab and trained me to be his grocer. So a grocer is somebody who dissects tissue, describes and dissects tissue with the naked eye, as it would be seen with the naked eye. So every day at five o'clock, a courier would come to the lab and deliver a cooler full of tissue samples that had been removed from people in Juneau at the hospital or doctor's office. Um, it was fascinating. I dissected all run-of-the-mill tissue, gallbladders, appendixes, all kinds of tumors, uteruses, eyeballs, testicles, um, vas deferens. Many of you are missing your vas deferens here today. <laughs> <laughs> so then I would put the tissue samples in plastic cartridges that would go into a processor, which overnight would infuse the tissue with paraffin. And the next morning, I would come in and take the paraffin blocks and cut them on a, an expensive machine that shaved slices off the tissue into long ribbons. And I would then float those on a hot water bath. I would pick up the best looking sections. I would put them on a glass slide, put the glass slide on a, heat, a hot plate that melted the paraffin and fixed the tissue. Then I would stain the slides and deliver them to the pathologist who would look at them under a microscope and write his report. I have some slides with me tonight if you want to look at them. They're anonymous slides. Uh, one day, one warm, sunny Juno day. Oh, by the way, at this time, the pathology lab was what's now Rainbow Foods. So that big chapel was my dissecting lab. Uh, so one day, the courier comes, and 
two guys carry in a styrofoam beer cooler wrapped with red biohazard tape. I'm <laughs> thinking, oh, are we having a party? Probably not. Um, so I unwrap the tape and take the lid off, and inside is uh, melted ice water and a clear plastic bag tied at the top, and inside the bag is a large intestine. Um, and so, and it smelled really bad because it was in water and not in preservative, and it was warm, and it had been fermenting in this cooler, and it was really disgusting. And the box, I could barely even lift it. It took two people to bring it in the door, but I also couldn't get the bag out of the cooler because it was so heavy, I felt like I was gonna rip the plastic. So I called the pathologist, and he must have known what was coming in because he screamed, I'm not coming down there, figure it out yourself. So I drugged the cooler to the edge of my grossing table. Now the grossing table is a stainless steel table with a edge around it and it's slanted into a big sink with a garbage disposal at the end. So I drug it over there and I like, with all of my might, I heaved this box to the edge of the table and I pinned it there with all of my weight. And then I thought, I need to just tip this box and pour some of this water out so I can manage this situation. And so I tipped the box and tipped the box and then suddenly the bag shifted and everything dumped into the sink and this wave of water splashed back at me. <laughs> and I leapt backwards screaming and the box fell down and bounced around on the floor. Also, the windows were open because it was warm and there was like paint house painters outside and they were all like at the window looking in like what is going on in here. So the bag, as you might imagine, plugged the sink drain and the water filled up in the sink. So I had to reach in there and pry the bag back and let the water drain down. And then I had to open the bag. So I opened the bag and it was so horrible that I had to run heaving to the garbage can. And then I couldn't get the colon out of the bag because it was huge and slimy and full of... <laughs> what you might imagine a colon would be full of. <laughs> but, so I pulled the bag out from around the colon, at which point the colon then went down the drain. <laughs> so I had reach in the sink and gingerly pull the colon out of the drain so that the stuff would go down and then I had to wrestle it onto the grossing table and it was like over five feet long and it had a tumor and so it had um the tumor had caused the material in the colon to back up over a long period of time and so it was enlarged like the size of a grapefruit or a melon or something your colon is really big by the way so my job, I had to rinse it out so that you could put the preservative on it, and then I had to cut it open and all this stuff. But to get it, to rinse it out, I had to get water in one end and then like lift it up over my head to get it to drain out the other end. Ugh. But finally, the colon succumbed to my with much spluttering and farting and splashing. It succumbed to the scalpel and the fixative. 
So the moral of the story, Juno, is if you don't want me all up in your colon, please eat your vegetables and get your colonoscopy. Okay, that's a hard one to follow. But the person up next is Mark Miller. And here is Mark's bio or intro. On the day after their wedding in 1972, Mark and his bride moved into their newly purchased home in Madison, Wisconsin. It was small and old with very low monthly payments, which was essential since neither of them had a job. They figured that any temporary jobs would pay the owner finance mortgage until real jobs could be had. But real jobs were far and few between. Finally, Mark heard of an immediate opening with top pay and benefits. It was even legal and only three blocks from home. In fact, they were always hiring in the chipping room of the Giddings and Lewis Iron Foundry. The work was intensely noisy, filthy, dirty, exhausting, and hazardous. Here's Mark. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Giddings and Lewis Iron Foundry. While the guys are back on coffee break, I've got about seven minutes to show you around the chipping room where I work and give you a brief tour. You might notice first off that the room is about the size of a basketball court, which is pretty large, but it's actually a smaller part of the factory complex. Behind me is the sand pit, the blast furnace, the mold room where the molds are made up, and shipping and receiving, and the um, factory offices. Now, you didn't go colorblind when you came in here. Um, the place always looks like a black and white movie because the dust that fills the air covers everything and smothers the color out of the whole place, including us workers. By the end of the day, we're covered in dust and look like we just had a dust bath in an ash pit someplace. We sort of resemble guys wandering or shadows in the moonlight. With all the dust that settles, uh, it kind of gives the place all the charm and romance of a dungeon, which is kind of ironic because many of the people that work here started from work release programs at the local prison. <laughs> the fellow that works next to me on this bench is Adrian. Uh, he looks to be in his mid-20s, and he's actually got quite a few stories of life in prison. Um, but he's one of the more pleasant people I've ever worked with. He's always got a big grin on his face about something, and he's always helpful and cheerful about work that needs to be done around the place. He was actually the guy I apprenticed under when I started working here. Uh, one day, a few days after I started working here, uh, Adrian was a little puzzled. And he, he asked me, he says, why would a college guy like you ever want to work in a place like this? Well, I, I surmise what happened was that word got out that a college guy was going to start working here. And I may have been the first and only. But the guys took up bets that I wouldn't last until noon my first day, which was uh, Pretty well-placed bets, actually, because in the five months I've been here, I've seen several guys come in for their first day, and they come, come in and look and stare at the spectacle in front of them and turn around and leave before they even start working. I think they could put up one of those highway information signs out in front that would, would you know, identify in some significant place, and it could say, this is that famous place you've all heard about where people say, you can't pay me enough to work there. Now that I think about it, I wonder why I'm working here. Maybe I should be concerned. Making uh, sand castings in an iron foundry is a lot like making sand castles on a beach. The sand is packed into a mold, 
and then molten iron is poured in to take the shape of the mold. The castings we make here are quite large and they're a two-piece outfit, so there's a top and a bottom. And there's intentionally a seam ref left around, a little space between those two pieces, so the hot gases can escape and make sure that the casting stays solid, doesn't have any air holes in it. And then that seam collects the molten iron a little bit and makes a fin. That fin has to be removed and that's what I get paid for. The theory is the fin is supposed to be about a quarter inch thick or less, but sometimes they can go over an inch thick and they can be quite nasty to try to re remove. The tool of first assault is a chipping hammer, which is a smaller version of the jackhammer you might see on a construction site where they're breaking concrete. Chipping hammer looks like a large drill with a trigger switch on the top and then a, a chisel goes in the bottom. So I hold the chisel, pull the trigger, and I can follow the fin around and peel it off, sort of like opening a can. After I get done doing the chiseling, I, I need to grind off the rough edges. That involves a, a, a larger, very powerful grinder. It spins about 30,000 RPM. And when I get it lean up against that, that uh, casting, the sparks will fly like in a big comet tail, like, like 4th of July. And it fills the room with more dust and about a bazillion little tiny iron needles that can actually stay afloat for quite some time. They get caught in our hair and any exposed skin, and they even go through some of the air vents on the, on the goggles. I had one removed a few weeks ago, and I didn't notice it the night that it, the first day that it happened, but the next morning when I woke up, every time I'd blink, you know, it'd say, oh, something's in your eye. But I got it removed before it started to rust and uh, get infected, which was common for the, these little iron parts. Uh, you can imagine, oh, I should tell you that uh, the only part that I worked on, or parts that I worked on since I've been here, looks like a, a humongous mutated tuba made out of cast iron. And it rings like a bell. And uh, so you can imagine with these grinders and chipping hammers working on these tools, there's about 30 guys working in here with me. It has the intensity of maybe if you sat under a church bell someplace and a dozen of your best friends pounded on it with hammers, uh, I, I don't recommend it. You might not trust some of your friends either that they'd quit on time. Well, I've, I'm going to miss the worst part of working in this place. Uh, my wife and I put our little home up for sale, and we're going to be moving to Alaska, kind of take advantage of all the jobs of, with the uh, oil fields opening up up there. And I can only imagine what working in this place in the summer would be like. Summers in Wisconsin get to be about 95 or 100 degrees with 100% humidity. And with that black blast furnace behind me pouring lava-like iron all day, uh, this is probably like one of those places you read about in the Bible where you don't want to go to when you die. <laughs> well, it looks like the guys are coming back from uh, break right now. That uh, fellow out in front is uh, Joe. He's from uh, Georgia. Joe's an uh, African-American who's been here for quite a number of years, and he keeps talking about retiring and going back to Georgia. And I was puzzled about it in one day, and I said, Joe, why would you ever want to move back to Georgia? This is, you know, all these uh, things going on in the news about civil rights. Isn't Georgia kind of a prejudiced place to go? And so this story is really as much about Joe as it about me. Uh, he said, yeah, there's, there's that to consider. But he said, uh, Georgia's my home. He said, I grew up there. He said, my folks are still there. My family's there. He said, it's just home. He said, the reason I left Georgia is because the only jobs available were farm work. I came up here, joined the Iron Workers Union. I've made good wages, I've been able to buy a home, raise a family, give my kids a good education. 
But he says, down there doing that farm work, you're up from morning to night, hunched over doing back wrenching work out in the hot sun all day. He said, all that for meager pay, you can barely afford to feed yourself, let alone a family. He said, that farm work is just the worst job ever. Our next speaker is India Busby. India is an 18-year-old who was born in Juneau. She works at Copa as an awkward barista, her words, who is still trying to figure out how customer service jobs work, and she really likes One Direction. Who doesn't? <laughs> she loves drinking milk, even though she's lactose intolerant, and she appreciates the small things, like finding pennies on the ground. She hopes to finish that novel that she's been trying to write for a couple of years now, but who knows? Please help me welcome India. Hi, my name is India, and two years ago, I was in high school, and my best friend Kylie and I had decided that it was time for us to get a job. So my friend Corbin, who is also the manager of the place I used to work at, he offered me to apply at the 20th Century Theater. My plan was to only work there for maybe like two or three months, but those two months turned into two years. and. There's good stories about that place, and there's some pretty bad ones. When you work at a movie theater, it's not all scooping popcorn and pressing a button to give you soda. It's actually kind of disgusting, and you really learn a lot about people. There's times where people would change their baby's diapers and put their diapers in the cup holders. <laughs> So we wouldn't know what it would be until we would grab it. And then we would realize, oh gosh, it's so gross. And then there's other people who tend to chew on the popcorn but then spit it out on the ground. So there had been a time where someone actually slipped on it. So that was a really bad time too. So we get a lot of tourists that come in. And so last summer, there would be this guy who would come in and he's on the cruise ships. And on a scale of one to Brad Pitt, on like the hotness scale, he was like Brad Pitt. <laughs> the thing was though, is that like, he talked really weird. It wasn't something that you expected. Like it wasn't the accent kind of thing. It was more like, Dijon and Pepper. <laughs> so you'd have to keep asking like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really hear what you said. Dijon Pepper. So because we couldn't really understand what he would say, we would sometimes like, just guess. Um, and sometimes that can be bad, so don't do that. If you ever work at a movie theater, don't do that. So we try to ignore his voice and more focus on the looks. So we'd be like, oh, hey, Corbin, that hot guy's in. And he'll be like, oh, my God. So that day, Corbin and I were standing in the lobby, and we were talking. And by the way, if you work at a movie theater, it's actually against the rules to stand in the lobby when you work there if you're not doing work, so because that's loitering and that's bad. So, so we were standing there and we were talking and Corbin, you know, every day he would say the same thing, I need to look for a new job, but he would never do it and he's been there longer than I have. Um, so we were talking about that and then we see this guy come in and he's super early. So our breaks usually are around uh, um, an hour to an hour, 30 minutes. Um, so yeah, so he came in super early and so he was like, can I use <laughs> and we're like, um, what? Can I use the bathroom? 
And we're just like, you know what, do whatever. Just you go, go do, go do it, do, go do you. And so he walked into the bathroom. And keep in mind that this building is a hundred like over a hundred years old. And so it's like pretty sure the apartments upstairs are haunted. Um, we're pretty that place is super creepy. So um, but it's so weird because the girls' bathroom is so nice, but the men's bathroom is disgusting. And one of the men's bathroom stalls don't have a door. And so if you're a guy, and, you, and I'm sure a lot of you guys know this, actually, if you've been to the 20th Century Theater, if you guys are, you know, a male. Um, <laughs> when you walk in there, um, when someone's using that stall, you can see everything. Everything. And so sometimes people like to keep the door open too. So it's just something you don't want to see. So anyway, so this guy's in the bathroom and he's been there for about like 10 minutes or so and Corbin and I are still in the lobby and you know, we're, we're waiting for our manager to tell us to kick us out, you know, to be like, oh, go outside, go do something. And, um, but then Corbin's like, India. And I'm like, what, Corbin? He's like, I gotta use the bathroom. And I'm like, well, you know, the bathroom's right there. You can go walk in. And Corbin is a person who likes to have a stall on their door um, when they go to the bathroom. And so Corbin would sometimes use the girls' bathroom. So Corbin's like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go use the bathroom. So he runs in there, and then he runs back out, and he's horrified. He's like, oh, my God, I think he's pooping. And we're like, oh, okay, um, what makes you think that? And he's like, well, he's sitting on the toilet, and um, it smells bad. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, Corbin, you know, like, I don't know what to tell you. Go use the girls' bathroom. And he's like, no, India, I can't do that. So I'm like, okay, fine. And so finally, like, after, like, 25 minutes, the guy finally comes back, and he's like, thank you. And he, <laughs> and he walks out. And so Corbin's like, all right, I'm going to go use the bathroom. So he runs in the bathroom, and he comes running back out. And I'm like, Corbin, what's going on, buddy? And he's like, India, there's poop all over the toilet seat. And I'm like, Corbin, don't play with me like that. And he's like, no, India, there is poop all over the toilet seat. And I'm like, ah, because we have to clean that up. And so, <laughs> so we walk back into the bathroom, and Corbin's like, just come on here. So I have to plug my nose. I got to keep myself, you know, ready. And so I plug my nose, and we both walk in there, and it's everywhere. <laughs> and suddenly, that one to Brad Pitt scale went negative 100. <laughs> He was not very attractive anymore. And so every time he comes back now, um, we just kind of pretend we don't know his secret, but we did because we cleaned it. <laughs> I didn't have to clean it. Christian actually had to clean it because Corbin cried to the manager saying he didn't want to clean it. <laughs> and, uh, and girls don't have to clean that, so I was pretty lucky. Um, but the point is, is that that made me realize I needed to find a new job. <laughs> But when it comes down to it, um, that place was actually super fun. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't have spent two years there. So, um, but if you do have little kids who are looking for a job, I don't recommend that. <laughs> Thank you. Now we have Phil Smith. Phil is a retired fisheries manager and community organizer. He was raised in Alaska, mostly in Cordova, and has worked as director of the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, a commissioner for the Limited Entry Commission, and the division director of the Federal Restricted Access Management Division. More importantly, he is the husband of Deborah Smith for 44 years, the dad of Crispian and Mor Mor 
That was two different pronunciations. Moira. Okay, thank you. And the grandpa of Maggie and Owen Medcalf. Please, let's welcome Phil Smith. Well, I want to thank you for that wonderful introduction. Of course, they make us write them. Uh, one of the things that I thought about doing this evening was telling three stories. So that's what I'll do. The first story is very, very short. It has to do with my first job. My first job was when I was a little kid, and uh, we lived at King Salmon, right on the shores of the Knack River, which, as you know, flows into Bristol Bay. And when we lived there in the wintertime, it'd get very, very cold, and, the, and the, uh, the, the river would freeze solid. And when I was about nine, my brother was 10 or 11, he talked me into being his crew. I said, well, what is this crew stuff? And we put on all of our outdoor clothes, I got all bundled up and walked down to the river with my dad's axe, and we chopped a hole in the river ice. And then we took a stick and tied a string around it with a little hook, a little sparkly thing on it, and we would jig for several minutes at a time, and we'd catch smelt, smelt or fish, sort of like, uh, oh, I don't know, Yulikan and a little very oily, small, and very, very tasty. So we worked this into an actual business where he would go around to all the Catholic people at King Salmon and offer to provide them fish on Friday. And that's, that's when it mattered, uh, what you ate on Friday. And so every Thursday afternoon, we were out there catching fish, setting them on the ice so they get all nice and frozen then packaging them very nicely, and going door to door and selling them. That was my first job. Not too long thereafter, we were living in Cordova, and we were offered a job by the FAA on an island outside of Cordova. I don't know if you know your geography, but the island was Hinchinbrook, and it was basically at the mouth of the Copper River. And on the side that we were working, there was a 13-mile sand beach that had been built up from the silt and the sand coming out of the Copper. It was essentially a triangle between the mouth of the Copper River, where we were on Hinchinbrook Island, and the little town of Cordova. And so, to tell you why we were there, the FAA was trying to install a new aid to navigation called a visual omni range, a VOR. And in order to test these things, they had to actually install them. And so they go out and they cut down all the trees in a large radius, and then they would put a screen over that area and set up the instruments and then test them. Well, as it turned out, we were, we were hired to work on a site that had all of that done to it, but they were not 
uh, working. So the FAA picked up all the stuff and moved someplace else to go look for a place. And uh, the Forest Service, because Cordova, that area, is part of Chugash National Forest, the Forest Service just raised hell. And they got on the FAA and they said, you better clean up those trees. So it's hard to believe, but for six months, six weeks that summer, I was on a crew together with my brother, another young man, and a boss, as well as a local. And we uh, went out there and cut up all the trees, got a D4 cat, dragged him into a huge fire area, dumped fuel oil on him, and lit him. And that was our job. Six o'clock in the morning, you get up, have breakfast, go out and chop trees and use your uh, chainsaw and so forth. Well, this area on Hinchinbrook Island was a very popular area for people from Cordova, and they called the area where we were working and where the people came to Strawberry Point because there were tons of wild strawberries there. And there was also a bear. And one night, we're all sitting around talking with a local guy there. And the local guy says, well, you know, we've got this two-year-old bear and big old brownie, you know. We can't, we can't just let him wander around down there. He's a nuisance. And uh, I was the youngest guy in the crew. And so they said, hey, Phil, would you like to shoot a bear? <laughs> well, I'd lived in Alaska all my life. And I thought, well, sure, I can shoot a bear. And I really didn't want to, but there you have it. You know, I was nominated by all these big, important guys. So we went out, and we actually, I actually shot that bear, and it died. And I'm not particularly proud of this, but we uh, and he didn't. Be, he was no threat then to the to the berry pickers, but we didn't know what to do with him. And so we went to a friend's house, who lived over there on on Strawberry Point, and he had just gotten back from Cordova with a case of Canadian Club. And of course, everybody had to celebrate the demise of the bear. We had to lubricate our thinking as to what to do with the thing when suddenly it hit us. And that is that there was the other guy on the crew was another guy who lived on the island he was really old, probably, I don't know, 35, <laughs> 36. I mean, he was an ancient. And he was a little bit strange, as are quite a few people who live out sort of pretty much by themselves in the Alaska bush. But he had a bicycle that he'd ride, ride down to the work site every day. And he was scared to death of bears. And he would wear a gun. He always had a gun in his just to protect himself from these bears, right? And so we decided with great hilarity that what we ought to do is go get this damn bear and prop him up in the middle of the path that the guy rode his bike on to come to work every day. So we did that. The guy came screaming down around the corner and he ran right into this bear. He fell off his bike. He clawed for his gun and dropped it kept on looking over his shoulder, got back on his bike, and went all the way to the work site. So that was our story of, of uh, poor Jim, his name was. 
He never lived it down, and we always had a story to tell. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. You just heard an abridged version of Phil Smith's story recorded on April 14, 2015 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was First Job, Worst Job. To hear Phil's full story or for more information, visit mudrooms.org. Our next speaker is Margot Waring. Margot moved to Alaska in 1969 after wandering around the Midwest for a while. She started a career in public service, including a term as a school board member, and has volunteered with many civic organizations, especially the League of Women Voters, which she notes is also open to men. Please help me welcome Margot. There are nasty jobs, and we've heard about some of them, and boring jobs, and exciting jobs. And then there are the worst jobs, jobs where you learn things that are bad, things you hadn't known, and things that might change your life. I moved to Chicago in the fall of 1964. Since many of you in the audience don't remember 1964, I'll give you a little bit of history. 1964 in Chicago was the high point of Mayor Richard Daley's career. Mayor Daley drove the county political machine that directed virtually every municipal function. He understood the block-by-block development of that political machine, beginning with the precinct captains, who held card files on every resident in their precinct and who called on every one of them on election day to make sure they understood whom the organization was supporting. And he understood the use of the more than 35,000 city and county jobs available to those machine workers who delivered the vote in their precincts. But I didn't know any of that at the time. What I did know was that in 1964, the Illinois Supreme Court invalidated the state's election districts and decreed that all candidates for the House of Representatives would run at large, all 118 of them. The ballot was yellow and over three feet long and looked something like this, measured out. It was called a bedsheet ballot. Getting back to my move to Chicago, I had no money and no job and needed both very badly. Then I heard on the radio that they were looking for ballot counters at the South Side Armory near where I lived among a lot of other people who needed jobs and money badly. The counting was to last all night and the pay was pretty good my friend Clark and I decided to give it a try. It was a chance to do our bit for good government and get paid for it. (laughs) That November election night, it rained hard. By the time we got to the armory, we were pretty soaked. A large crowd of people 
jammed in front of the armory. Clark stood out as the only visible male, and both of us with pale skins stood out. A woman standing next to us asked us if we wanted to count ballots. We said we did. She told us that in a short while, a man would come through the door and he would ask if there were any Republicans and we were to raise our hands and we would get a job. <laughs> Just as she said, after we stood in the rain for a while longer, a man came through that heavy wooden door and asked if there were any Republicans. We raised our hands. He beckoned us to come with him and follow him, and we did. He wore a button that said, Democratic Ward Chairman. He took us to a man who had a button that said, Republican Ward Chairman. And he told that man to give us our Republican credentials. That man did and we pinned them on our shirts. We were then taken upstairs, a huge football-sized room with rows and rows of folding tables. Each table had four chairs and one ballot box. Two women sat at our table, one young and one middle-aged. We introduced ourselves. Over the loudspeaker, we were given our instructions to count the three-foot-long ballots with 118 names. We had a tally sheet. Voters could, count, could vote straight party or individually. The table had space for maybe six ballots at a time, spread out to be tallied. We started to count. Here I have to tell you that neither Clark nor I were really Republicans. <laughs> but we really believed the things that we had learned in our civics classes in school. Each time we counted how many names were voted for in our six ballots, Clark and I came up with different tallies from our Democratic ballot counters. We would count over again and over again it was tedious. Clark and I huddled and came up with a plan. The first error would go to them, the second error would go to us. <laughs> this pretty much ended differences in our tallies, but it was still very slow. It soon became clear that part of the slowness was that one of the ballot counters could not read the names on the ballot. We agreed that she should sit it out. <laughs> As we counted, we listened to the older woman explaining to the younger how the patronage system in Chicago worked, how you could work for the post office at Christmas and the parks department in the summer, and you would be taken care of in times of need. Unspoken was what you did in exchange. The night wore on, six ballots at a time. Party names, party and names were recorded on the tally sheet. 12 hours later, we had counted about three quarters of our ballot box. We had lots of straight party votes 
but we also had many more individually selected candidates. We looked around at the dozens and dozens of tables stretching out the length of the armory, tables at which ballot counters had counted two and three and four ballot boxes. We put on our coats and left. We got our checks in the mail and listened for the results of the election. It was a long wait. Finally, just before Christmas, the final vote tally was given. The lessons I learned about how fragile democracy can be have lasted all my life. I still do elections work, but none like the ballot process in Chicago in 1964. Thank you. All right, next up, Molly Briggs. Molly Briggs, now they write these, right? So they gotta write them in third person, so imagine her writing this, all right? Molly Briggs is an independent woman that relies heavily on other people for love and support. <laughs> she is 100% dedicated to the fact that she is completely indecisive. She followed her intuition, listened to her heart, and fell in love with a Juno boy that stood out among the crowd of surfers and new age hippies that inhabited her college town in Southern California. She and her fiance are now half-heartedly nomadic, bouncing back and forth between Juno and Maine, always leaving wiggle room for more adventures in between. Please welcome Molly Briggs. That'll do, thank you. So I'm the youngest of five, and my four older brothers um, are very protective of me. And uh, the youngest of the four older brothers is five years older, so there's that gap. And in that gap, my mom spent a lot of time begging and pleading my dad, because she really wanted to have a girl. And so when uh, I came out of mama's womb and they saw I had lady parts, everybody was really excited. And that's when I started my job, and the description is being adorable. And the benefit is being protected. So, <laughs> so when I decided to leave Maine and go to school in California, that was a pretty big deal for everybody. Um, but I had a really good time. I met a couple of really great friends. Two people that I'd like to verbally introduce are like characters picked out of a novel. We have Mr. Blake Buchanan, who is a very tall, um, very handsome and motivated um, filmmaker. He's also a performing musician and a composer. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have Joseph Pfister, and he's very scrawny, also a filmmaker um, and into Japanese anime and very monotone and her sarcastic sense of humor. Sorry. And so one night we're hanging out and I have this really bad feeling about the night uh, and I just want the night to be over. So when Blake announces that he's gonna head home, I get kind of excited. I'm like, okay, I just have to get rid of Joseph and this night will be over. But 30 minutes after Blake leaves, I get a phone call and he's panicked and he just got hit by a drunk driver. His car's totaled and all of the film equipment is in the back of his car. 
So I said, don't worry, we're, we'll be right there, uh, stay calm. So Joseph and I hop in my car, we're going down uh, south on the 101 from Ventura to Oxnard. Not once, but twice do we see two cars coming on the off-ramp. So we, uh, we inform the police, um, and by the time we get to Blake, he's still all panicked, and we move all the film equipment from his car to my car, we go to his house, calm him down, and that takes a few hours. By the time we get back to my house, um, where I live and Joseph's car is parked, uh, we get, um, it's about 3.30 in the morning at this time, and this guy comes out of the bushes, and he goes to Joseph, and he says, What's up, Bessie? Give me all your money. And so Joseph Fister, being Joseph Fister, takes out his wallet and says, I literally have $2. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there shaking, and, and, he, and uh, how can you be sarcastic in the, at this point, of, point in your life? So he hands him the $2, and I'm like, okay. He, the guy starts to turn to leave, and then he turns back at me, and he's holding a knife, and he says, what about you, bitch? What do you have? And so my own, the only things that I'm clenching in my hands are my uh, phone and my keys. And so I just, I'm shaking, I show him what I have, and he said, put it on the car. I said, okay. So I put the things, and he immediately grabs them, puts my phone in his pocket, and he gets in my car. And he starts the car, and I'm backing away. And uh, Joseph hands his phone behind his back to me. He says, call the police. And this is before I had a smartphone or anything, and I'm trying to unlock his phone, I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm not feeling very protective, and the whole adorable thing isn't working for me at this time, and so I, I hand it back, I said, I can't unlock it, and so he unlocks it, hands it back to me, meanwhile, the guy's still fiddling around in my car, so I'm backing away, and I'm, I call the police, and on the phone, and I tell him where, where I am, and what's going on, and at this point, I'm kind of more relaxed, and I said, my car is being stolen right now. I'm watching it happen. And I turn, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, Joseph Fister, the big hero, runs by me, and he says, hey, I'd run if I were you. And the guy comes out of my car, holding the knife, running at me, and I, I had this point in my head. I said, okay, I'm wearing these adorable sandals that aren't so great at running, so I stop and take them off. At this point, the guy's about two feet away from me, and I uh, had this adrenaline pumping, I guess, and I start running away from this guy, and you imagine what you'd be like in this situation. A guy with a knife, was, in my head, I'd be like Jet Li, or you know, Bruce Lee, sorry, and like kick him and do all these things, but I find myself in the most pathetic, vulnerable point of, point of my life. I'm sprinting through this neighborhood at four in the morning, Police are still on the phone, by the way, and I'm screaming, help, help. And I guess we lose him because uh, eventually we're just behind um, this parking garage, panting, and the f policewoman on the phone, calm down, ma'am. <laughs> Serious? <laughs> so, um, so the police come, and the guy actually didn't end up stealing my car. He just took all of my keys and my phone and everything. And um, I... This is where I made the, the wrong decision. Is uh, I, go, I go to Joseph's house because I wanted to use his phone to call home. And I call everyone in my phone, or my, my brain phone, except for my mom, because I don't want her to find out. I finally get a hold of my sister-in-law, and I say, hey, you know, at this point I'm bawling. I said, hey, this is what happened to me. Please don't tell my mom. And um, eventually, 
she finds out, of course. How would a mom not find out? But she found out in the worst way possible. Joseph had gone on Facebook and wrote a whole thing about the night. Someone had, you know, tagged me in it or whatever. My uncle finds out, calls my mom, and then my mom calls me, and she's on the phone, and I know that she knows, and she knows that I know that she knows, and we, it just, a, you know, a silence in the, on the lines, and I say, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't want you to worry, and she just kind of laughed and then cried and said, it's not your job to decide when I worry. I'm a mom. I'm always going to worry. <laughs> and I knew from that point on that it's my job to understand where to go and, and, what, and what to say, and I'll understand when I'm a mom that that's the job you take on. <laughs> Okay, so our last speaker is Eric Caldwell, and he's best known in Juno for being involved with locally driven artistic projects that are outside the mainstream. His penchant for physical comedy has landed him in many awkward situations, leading to both injury and bloodshed, mostly his own. Eric produces the Alaska State Improv Festival, a collection of improv talent from across the country who perform April 23rd to 26th at McFeeders Hall, coming right up. Unlike the Improv Festival, Eric promises that tonight's story has been prepared in advance, reflects his real life experiences, and is not based on an audience suggestion. Please help me welcome Eric. Most mudroom speakers do go without a script, but since I'm known for going off the cuff, here's my proof. So my worst job. The funny thing about my worst job is that on the surface, the job itself was great. I was working as a major donor researcher for a Division I university. I worked a block from a brew pub, a bakery, an espresso stand, and an ice cream shop. It was great. My work life revolved around reading newspapers, poking around the internet, trying to figure out what our alumni were up to, and more importantly, what they were worth. I would pass this information on to the handshakers, the people who would walk into a room and say, hi, my name's John. We'd like you to consider donating $100,000 to our building campaign. And these people, on the other end of the handshake, would pull out their checkbooks, write these massive checks to the university. It was a great job. I was good at what I did. And quite frankly, it was the worst job I ever had. Those of you who have had a career of any length at all know that where you work, who you work with, and what resources you have are more important to how happy you are than your compensation. My very first day, I was introduced to the cage. My fellow researchers, they were up against the windows, they 
got fresh air, sunshine. Me, I was in a metal box in the back of the room. But the metal box was not my greatest nemesis. My greatest nemesis was the woman who put me in that box. The boss. I almost didn't hire you because it's been so long since we've had a man in this shop. But you were clearly the most qualified. The boss always made sure that I knew my place and that I was being tolerated for the moment. I'm looking to you to be a Radar O'Reilly type. The boss wanted me to be psychic, too. Requests for clarification led to closed-door meetings. Closed-door screamings, really, but, uh, you know, that is when she bothered to close the door. I wasn't the only one the boss treated this way, though. And one by one, we lost our researchers, our interns, and our clerical staff. HR didn't even bother replacing people anymore because they knew eventually they'd just leave and all that training would be out the door. But the one thing that I could always count on was access to resources. The university had great resources to find out about our donors. We could look into databases and find out what their house was worth, how much they'd given to different places and organizations. I could even tell you down to the penny how much the founder of Nike had given in gifts. <laughs> then one day, I was assigned to prepare a report for the university president, a request that should have been easy to fulfill. I went to open the standard query that I used to get the required data and was on track to finish this assignment in less than 30 minutes, meeting the Domino's promise, a full week ahead of schedule. My access to run the query was no longer valid. I informed the boss. I asked for access to the query. In lieu of access to the query, I asked her to run it herself and give me the data so I could do my job. The boss came to my desk one week later, demanding to know why the president did not have his report. My eyes glazed over. The light went out. At that moment, I knew I could not succeed because the boss would not provide me the resources to do so. I still did my best for the handshakers. The information requests, which went as far as estimating the stud value of a horse that won two legs of the Triple Crown, were still coming in and still being fulfilled. And the handshakers were still thrilled with my work. But the die had been cast. It was time for my performance review. The boss and I talked about areas where I was doing well, and areas where I was struggling, 
the words she said actually reflected how I felt I was doing. The boss then handed me the official review and sent me back to my desk. And it was the most libelous, inaccurate account I have ever read. I spent the entire evening rebutting point after point after point until the rebuttal was as long as the review itself. HR got involved, the executive director got involved. It was determined that HR would meet with me and the boss every Monday to go over my work and smooth out any gaps in communication. The boss called me in directly after that meeting and gave me the most acidic tongue lashing of my professional career. Then went on vacation. I submitted my resignation the very next day. My keys were turned in by the time the boss found out that I was leaving. I only stayed for a few more days after that. On my last day, one of the handshakers called me up and said, if I had a job, it would be yours. I would hire you in a second. One of the other handshakers came to me and said, you know, this was someone who worked with the boss before. I don't want to know what happened. I just want you to know, I understand. And good luck. Finally, as I was leaving the cage for the very last time, the boss stopped me on the way out the door. Her final words, Eric, I wish you weren't leaving. <laughs> Thank you. Not to be abused. I take these movies from my father. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on April 14, 2015. The theme for the evening was First Job, Worst Job. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak with additional help from Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Katie Spielberger, and Steve Suing. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. To combat my pills, I send my spirit against the laws of God. Somehow I'm still downtrodden. Somehow I'm still downtrodden. Somehow I'm still downtrodden.